0: Take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter five this morning. We're going to read verses one through twenty. In chapter four, we really heard Jesus from his own words as he taught these parables. The parables were teaching about Jesus' principles and power of his kingdom. And now we're looking at three examples from the real life of Jesus, where he displays his principles of and power of his kingdom. Last week we saw him calm the storm at sea. Today he delivers a man from many demons and restores him to life. In fact, this man is moved from bondage to freedom. And so as you turn to Mark 5, I'll remind you that this is God's Word written. It's the only infallible rule that we have for for faith, what to believe, and practice. That is how we might live out of that faith. Here's God's Word. Holy Father, you make promises that you will send forth your word and it will not return void. And so we pray this day that as you work through the the mouth of a sinful, crooked stick like me, that you would point the way to Christ Jesus. And that in that pointing, Father, you would give us, your people, the ears to hear what your Spirit says to us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you contrast this passage to the one that we studied last week, you'll notice a massive difference in in length. Jesus calms the storm, and in the original language, it just takes 150 words to explain the profound event. It's basically six verses as compared to 20 in this account. In fact, this is the, the longest and most detailed account in all of Mark's gospel, but it's also the longest and most detailed account of an exorcism anywhere in the Bible. Now, think about why that is. You have three little vignettes that serve as examples of the power of Christ and his kingdom. Jesus calms the storm, which means he has power over all of the circumstances that you face in your own life, circumstances that feel like storms. The account that comes right after this one, Jesus heals a woman who has a discharge of blood, and then he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Mark's point, Jesus has power over suffering and death. But pigs, what's the point of this one? Well, in the Roman army, a a legion was anywhere from 2,000 to 6,000 soldiers. So, here's a, a legion of demons who have invaded and oppressed one man. If you take a minute to step back from the passage and you you see the torment that this man is in, you recognize that it is not only detailed, but it's actually shocking and sad. This man is deeply suffering. But you see it in a, a, a scenario that seems far beyond what you and I have seen in our own lives. And yet we must understand that it is meant here to comfort us That the evil that can be dealt with in worst-case scenarios can also be dealt with in your own heart. And the very evil that you and I so often underestimate. And then could it be that the reason for the length and the detail of this account has to do with the fact that evil is something that you encounter every single day? Yes, you're going to encounter storms sometimes. You're going to encounter suffering and death eventually. But the fact is that evil is all around you. More importantly, perhaps Mark says it's not just a problem out there in the world. It's also a problem within your own heart. And so here's a passage that says we have a tendency to underestimate the power of evil in our own lives. And here's a, a, a profound example of how evil, evil really is. It is like a, a cancer within you. A cancer from which no one is exempt. And if you're honest, there are places in your own heart where you are still holding tightly to the power of evil. Now, Maybe not like you did before you knew Christ, but still to some degree. And so this passage teaches us to surrender to the transforming power of Christ. And we're going to break this passage down simply into three points. We'll study bondage to evil, and then precious pigs, and then thirdly, opposite responses. So let's start with the bondage to evil. A boat ride across this sea should have taken a couple of hours. We don't know how long it took given the storm, so we don't know if this is early morning or still in the middle of the night. But if the disciples are getting to the other side of the water, hoping to finally get some rest, they're not going to find it, nor is Jesus. Verse 2, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, here's Mark's favorite word in the whole gospel, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, those who are unfamiliar with the Bible might look at a passage like this and say, I bet the Bible's full of stories of angels and, and demons. But the fact is that outside of the Gospels, demons are, are actually very rare in the overall scope of the Bible. But the, they are extremely common in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why is that? Well, you can trace this issue all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the Garden of Eden, after the sin of Adam brought mankind into this state of sin and misery, God promised that the seed of this woman would rise up and crush the head of this serpent, all while the serpent continues to try to strike at the heel of this son of Eve. And ultimately, that was a promise of a Redeemer. And the Bible says that that Redeemer is Jesus Christ, who will, in fact, crush Satan And Satan will, throughout the life of Jesus, do everything he can to oppose God's chosen Redeemer. Ultimately, when Jesus goes to the cross, he really does crush and destroy the power of sin, the power of hell, the power of Satan. And he does it because all of the sins of all of God's people are laid upon Jesus. And when he dies and rises evil loses all of the venom of that strike. For sure, when God became man and entered the world as a baby, Satan and the demons of hell knew exactly who he was. I do not know whether they understood how he would redeem the world, but the incarnation was the moment of attack. Now, how does this relate to you and me in a different time, and a different place? Well, not everybody's demon-possessed. Hopefully, none of you are. And yet, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 says, Apart from the work of Christ in your life, this is the same force, this is the same power that's at work in all of humanity. By nature, from birth, we are all actually governed by these sinister forces. And so Sinclair Ferguson says Legion vividly illustrates the terrible plight of the human condition. And that's why you and I can't dismiss something like this as if it's just irrelevant. Because the Bible says evil is pervasive. It's pervasive out in the world, but it's also pervasive in the human heart. So doctors who would study a cancer patient would want to examine the worst-case scenario. They'd want to get to the very end, and they'd want to say, look, let's, let's learn from this, the, the nature and the effects of the cancer. Well, friends, Legion is like a cancer patient. He is utterly eaten up with, with evil. And so as we, as we look at Legion, we learn the nature and the effects of evil. I want to point out three things here, when we look at Legion. Number one, evil ends in isolation. Verse three says, Legion lived among the tombs. Now he's isolated from God. You expect that part. He's also isolated from humanity. But in another sense, he's also isolated from himself, that is, from his own right mind. You remember. That what we see in Legion is is evil full-blown. It's in its fullest unhindered form. But it is also the things that we learn here are also true in seed form. When you give yourself to evil, you are first choosing to isolate yourself from God. Emma? Really? Yes, because evil at its core is against God. Its design is to to, to oppose God. It's actually designed to conquer God. God. That's why there's no such thing as, as dabbling in a little bit of evil, because the more you surrender yourself to it, the more you're giving yourself to the reign of, of evil rather than the reign of Jesus. And then the more you find yourself increasingly distant from your Creator. But evil also isolates you from others. Even while it tells you this this weird and and absurd lie it says this is the path to life if you will follow this way you'll get friends you'll get a, a whole group of people who will love you and accept you and this is why you can you can party like a proverbial rock star in whatever area of your life and you think there's a whole community to be had over there but give yourself to evil repeatedly And then you'll find what every rock star ultimately finds out. That when evil grows within you, it drives others away. It hurts other people. So that you have your own little personal party over here. But then you're all alone. But you notice in Legion that evil also isolates you from yourself. God created this man to be healthy, to be happy in relationship with God, in relationship with friends, and in his right mind. And what does evil do? It divides his mind. So that what seems natural to your sin nature, when you begin to feed it, it becomes increasingly irrational. Both Jeffrey Dahmer and Ted Bundy said, well, it all started with pornography. And you might say, well, Eric, that's, look, that's like a worst-case scenario. Of course it is. But it makes the same seed level point that sin always becomes increasingly irrational. You give yourself to sin and actually divides you from your own sane mind. The guy who's ultimately expelled from law school for cheating didn't get his start cheating in law school. He got his start in in fourth grade when the risks were so little, and then he fed that sin in seventh grade and eleventh grade and his sophomore year in college. Is there a lot more to lose by cheating in law school? Yeah, absolutely, but sin and evil makes you increasingly Irrational. The girl who's a a senior in high school, who's constantly somehow in the middle of all the drama. She didn't just suddenly stumble into that place. It started in in sixth grade or seventh grade when she wanted power and she wanted to feel superior over others. So she begins to talk behind other people's backs. She begins to treat people with cruelty and she gossips and she spreads rumors in hopes of hurting someone else. And then she sits there in her room by herself and goes, I hate them. And yet I'm all alone. Because sin makes you increasingly irrational. And then you wonder, how did I get here? The bondage of evil is illustrated in isolation. But it's also illustrated in this, that evil is the pathway to slavery. Look at verse 3. No one could bind him anymore. That is, they tried many times, but he could literally break the chains. And that word, anymore, tells us that the evil in Legion had become out of control. And there was a time that he surely thought that the evil that is within me is under control. But the fact is that evil is so progressive that the very nature of evil is to enslave Every time his family went out there to chain him up, because there are no insane asylums. They're just trying to keep him from hurting himself. And don't you know that he gritted his teeth, and he said, no, you will not control me. I am free. And to, to burst those chains made him think he's free. And you and I read this passage, and you go, legion is anything but, but free. And that's the lie of evil, isn't it? That it always promises you greater and greater freedom even as it it shackles you in sin so that like legion you become so ensnared to evil that you are not free at all. You're unable to control yourself. But the chains, the chains would say to you it is not a restraint problem. It's a heart problem. And those broken shackles prove you can't actually conquer evil by any external force or any internal force. You can't restrain evil in your own heart by self-will or by self-improvement. You are a slave to evil because the power of evil is greater than the power of self-will. Look at Christ Which is why Christ is such the profound answer to this problem. Because apart from the power of Christ, there is no power in all the world to break the bondage of evil to which legion is enslaved. Evil isolates, evil enslaves. But then evil is also self-destructive. Verse 5 summarizes his existence. It says, night and day, living all alone on the mountains, away from everyone else, he would shriek and cut himself with sharp stones. It's, it's a vivid picture, a graphic and, and, and sad picture of the fact that evil is always self-destructive, that, that sin by its very nature is self-destructive as it isolates you from your own rational mind, and you become increasingly irrational. What would cause somebody to get so bad that they would start to to want to injure themselves? Self-hatred, which can easily flow from the feelings of being overwhelmed by evil, overcome by sin, And I'll bet some of you go, Mm. I think I do get that. In fact, all of us at some level know what it's like to say something or do something that you know is wrong. And then you feel guilty and embarrassed and shame for it. But you do not take that guilt and shame to Christ. Instead, you start feeling overwhelmed by it. And as odd as it seems, you would somehow rather beat yourself up mentally and emotionally. You'd rather punch yourself in the face or call yourself an idiot than run to Christ for help. Paul Tripp says there is no such thing as constructive evil. If you are giving yourself to evil, you are on a sure path to destruction. And so that momentary feeling of high for a a person to be able to to cut someone else with their words or to be able to use food or drink to comfort your pain or to to stare at a, a picture which on the surface seems so beautiful and you find your soul being sucked in and lost in lust. Then, as soon as the high is over, you hate yourself. And then you want to implicate others in your self-hatred, and you lash out, and you blame, and you get short with other people. Bondage to evil results in isolation and slavery and self-destruction. But I want you to show, to show you this apparent contradiction in legion when he meets Jesus. Look at verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me To to run to Jesus and to fall at his feet looks like a posture of submission. What do you want with me? And then this word adjure, which nobody uses today. It means I command you, I order you, I charge you by God Himself. Do not torment me. Do you see the irony? that the demons of hell would swear by the name of God to try to get power over the God who's literally standing in front of them. But there is greater irony too. Enslaved by evil, Legion is in the same moment drawn to the Christ who has the power to deliver him. But on the other hand, the demons that dwell within him are trembling with fear. Fear for what? Fear over the possible consequences. What's going to happen if he really does heal me? And it seems like a contradiction. And you would think that a person who was so deeply tormented would readily run to Christ for help. And Sinclair Ferguson says that indwelling sin nature means that tragically, like Legion, men often hold on to their bondage in evil rather than yield to the pain of transformation and the power of God's grace. If you have not surrendered your heart to Christ, everything I've described is what's going on within you even now. For you know that Christ can heal you. But something within you makes you want to to gain the upper hand on him so that he will heal you on your terms and, and cause you no pain. And yet your need is so clear, but you refuse true healing because your hands are holding tightly to evil within you. But friends, it is my hope for you in Christ that you know him. And therefore, the bondage to evil is already broken. In fact, you are not enslaved to sin. And yet, every single Christian still has places where his or her hands still grab tightly to sin patterns and certain idols, and you're afraid to let them go because you fear that the consequences of what Jesus might do in you could be too potentially painful. Do you want to be delivered from the evil? that seeks to enslave you, then surrender to the transforming power of Christ. So we have bondage to evil. Now let's look at these precious pigs. After the legion of demons begged Jesus not to send them out of the country, Mark tells us, verse 11, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. They begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. I, I don't remember if it was high school or college, but I was assigned to read an essay which was written by Bertrand Russell, and the essay was called, Why I Am Not a Christian. He was an English philosopher, a mathematician, And in his essay, he cites this Mark chapter 5 account as the reason that he could not possibly be a Christian. What did Jesus do to those pigs? Russell's life was such a moral train wreck. Quite sad, actually, that I think it tells us more than his essay does about his true motives for rejecting Christ. But let me be honest, you don't have to be an atheist, to look at a passage like this and go, I don't know, that's odd. What's going on there? I think it seems odd to us because we understand so little about the cosmic battle that exists between evil and the kingdom of Christ. What do you notice here? Borrow some ideas from some other pastors just to simply point out a few things. Number one, the demons are actually the ones who are begging to go to the pigs. In fact, the posture of these demons is a, is a posture of defense. Jesus is the one who is on the attack, and if they want to inhabit a body, Jesus says, well, you're not going to inhabit this one. And, of course, he has to give them permission. And he gives them that permission. And they know, in Matthew's account, he tells us that they say, are you here to torment us before the time They all know that they are going to be judged and punished in the end. But they have come to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus is here at this moment to plunder the house of the evil one. To take back all of God's people and to bring them home. He did not come at first to judge and punish Satan. Secondly, what the demons do to the pigs is proof of what they intended to do to the man. That is that the demons want to destroy God's creation, whether that's an image-bearer, a person, or anything else that God created. Because Satan came to kill and steal and destroy, that's what the demons are doing. And by the same token, do you see the superior power of Jesus? He has to allow them this. Number three, I would encourage you to put yourself in the place of this man who has now been delivered from a legion of demons. How could he ever be sure that that thousands of demons would not come back and overtake him again? How could he be sure that the salvation that was given to him on that day would really last? One pastor said there was only one way and Jesus chose it, and it is misplaced sentimentality to weep over the destruction of the pigs. It shows that we do not have our priorities aligned with the priorities of Jesus, those precious pigs. Two applications. First, your current culture places a value on animals over and above the value of human life. And it is the same camp who is deeply concerned with the ethical treatment of animals that spends thousands to make sure that human life can be destroyed in the name of a personal choice. We should certainly be concerned for the animals. We should be far more concerned with the value of human life. But these precious pigs teach us something else, though and that is because you and i know so little about how christ actually defeats evil within us when it comes to his authority to defeat evil within your own heart you don't have any right to tell him what you think is odd what you think would be too much what you think is unnecessary you don't have the right to say jesus well you can you can do this but but don't do that do not hold tightly To the remnants of evil in your own life? And would you be okay if Christ was to do whatever it took? And whatever method he would use, we should surrender to the transforming power of Christ. We have bondage to evil, precious pigs. We're going to close with opposite responses. Those who were paid to watch the pigs, they go running back into the city, and they, they bring people back. Verse 11, the demon-possessed man and, and the one who had the legion sitting there, he's in his right mind, and they're afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Now, listen, friends, Jews would have read these pigs, which are unclean to them anyway, and they would have said, oh, good. Well, we got rid of some of those nasty things. Modern readers look at these pigs, and they go, oh, those, those precious pigs. But those who come running back to Jesus and find the man sitting there are thinking entirely financially. 2,000 pigs. It's a, it's a major financial loss to the owners, But you see, they value those pigs more than they value the salvation of this man. Why is that? Well, but it's financial. No, no, no. It's more than that. It's because they, like many of us, ignore the severity of evil. And they think that evil is a problem that is outside of them. And so by the fact that they tell Jesus to leave, it says that they recognize that there's a problem within themselves, but they do not want him to come close to that problem. Legion has been saved, but the crowd chooses the financial over Christ. What does that tell us? It says they're actually still holding on very tightly to the evil within their own hearts. And you and I are not exempt from their condition. We presume that our biggest problem with evil is outside of us. I wonder if you are not like them, still making excuses to hang on to the evil within your own heart. Well, it would cost too much to get rid of it this way. It would be too awkward to have to really deal with it right now. I don't have the time. And then what about my reputation? You see, the response of these townspeople tells us that there are two opposite responses to the presence and the power of Christ. And one is to fear the transforming power of Christ and therefore hold tightly to the evil within your own heart. And the other is to surrender to the transforming power of Christ. Townspeople want to send Jesus away, not because of what he's cost them financially, But because if he can transform legion like that, I suspect they're curious and perhaps concerned at what transformation might look like personally. I mean, they're too civilized to scream like legion in verse 7. But make no mistake, they are actually terrified at what the power of Christ might do to their grip on the idols in their lives. They're still holding on to the evil within their own hearts. They're still enslaved to finances, enslaved to the perception of freedom, enslaved to the the, the thought that I'm going to appear to everyone else like I really do have it together. And so as they grab their idols, they say, leave us Jesus. And there's this beautiful response, which is the better response, the path of one who was once called legion. I wonder if you would, like Him, surrender to the power and presence of Christ, no matter the cost. Would you let Christ transform you? Jesus goes back and He, he climbs into the boat, and the, yet the joy of the salvation in this man, He, he begs, Jesus, can I follow you? Can I, can I go with you? He's asking, Jesus, can I be one of your disciples? He's asking, can I be one of the twelve? The fact is, Jesus calls him to be a disciple among his own people. Jesus says, no, go home to your friends. Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And that's not just Jesus is calling for this man. It's Jesus calling for all those who have been moved from bondage to freedom. As you and I would continually surrender to the power of Christ, you tell others what Jesus has done for you. What has Jesus done for you? This isn't actually a story about pigs. How did Jesus take his people from bondage to freedom? Because as those demons were cast into the pigs, Jesus actually had your sins in mind cast onto himself. And he laying himself upon the cross willingly agreed to allow himself to be driven off the proverbial cliff, to drown under the weight of God's wrath, and to eternally be punished for your sins and mine. And then in rising from the dead, there's a very real sense in which he conquered the evil and the sin in which you and I had, which drove him over the cliff itself. That's the gospel. That's the power at work to transform you and me, that we would be more like Christ. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks for taking the place of our sin, for willingly running headlong off the cliff and bearing the weight of our what our sins deserve. And so, Father, we pray that you would bind our hearts to Christ, that you would cause this to sit deeply in our hearts and to move us and change us, that we might be willing to be transformed by your power and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.